0: There are estimated to be 34,000 people in Australia who are living with cerebral palsy and it affects 1 in 700 babies. For some families, there's an explanation for this disorder which can affect movement, vision, speech and intellect, but often it's a mystery. And with the advent of more accessible gene testing, there's been growing interest in whether looking at the child's genes yields useful information for parents and treatment teams. That's what a review of the available evidence sought to answer. One of the researchers was Dr. Siddharth Srivastava, who's in the Department of Neurology at the Boston Children's Hospital.
1: Of course, yeah, it's my pleasure.
0: Now, cerebral palsy has been this controversial condition. It's the cause of a lot of litigation against obstetricians because people say it's due to oxygen deprivation at birth. Work done here in Western Australia has shown that that's actually a rare cause of cerebral palsy. It's mostly upstream. Something happens during pregnancy. But the question is, what is it that happens? I mean, presumably that's at the core of what you've been looking at.
1: That's right. There is a lot of confusion about what the term cerebral palsy or CP even means. If you look at the definition of CP, the definition refers to a non-progressive motor disturbance of early childhood due to injury to the developing brain. It's pretty general, and it covers a wide variety of different causes, things like prematurity, hemorrhage, infection, stroke, and in some cases, decreased oxygen at birth. The cause of decreased oxygen at birth is actually a very small percentage of total cases of CP, And my own work is looking at the different genetic factors that lead to a presentation of CP.
0: And also there are different ways that CP shows itself in a child. It could be what's called a motor disability where the child has trouble getting around and moving. There could be problems with the eyes and vision and so on and there can be sometimes intellectual delay as well. Absolutely. CP can present very heterogeneously. You can have some
1: children and adults who are mildly affected who are able to walk on their own without support. On the opposite end of the spectrum you can have children and adults who are significantly affected who require wheelchairs for ambulation who need assistance in terms of all activities of daily living you also have additional conditions like intellectual disability communication impairment hearing issues and the like
0: so in this study you try to gather all the evidence together about if you look for a genetic cause there was something wrong in the genes of these kids To use the technical term, you're looking at the exome sequences. Now, the exome part of our genome is the part of the genome that codes for proteins. In other words, it does stuff in terms of you can measure the effect of those genes in terms of what they produce.
1: That's correct. So in this study, we did this meta-analysis where we looked at the diagnostic yield of two different genetic tests, including exome sequencing, which you were talking about, and a different test called the chromosomal microarray we looked at the diagnostic yield of both of these tests for picking up a genetic disorder in cases of CP. Just to explain these two tests in a little bit more detail, one way of thinking about how DNA is organized is by imagining a book which has chapters, pages, words, letters. A chromosomal microarray is a way of detecting whether there are certain pages, for example, that may be missing or that may be extra. Exome sequencing has a much higher resolution and can actually detect if there are words that are misspelled or if there are single letters that are missing or extra.
0: And when you brought that together, the evidence, what did you find in terms of the usefulness of these tests in helping parents understand the reason for their child having cerebral palsy?
1: So what we found is that with exome sequencing, the overall diagnostic yield in cases of CP was about 23% and using chromosomal microarray, the overall diagnostic yield was about 5%. In other words, there is a substantial percentage of cases of CP that may be genetic in nature.
0: So if you use the gold standard, which is exome sequencing, but one in four of these children would have their condition explained by the genes, but was it a thousand different conditions or five? And were the conditions that would make a difference to the treatment of that child?
1: there are multiple different genetic disorders that can present as CP. There are some conditions that come at the forefront, but certainly there is a wide range of different genetic conditions, genetic disorders that were presented
0: in this data. But what about what the cancer people call actionable genes? In other words, genes which tell you that there might be a treatment available.
1: In this study itself, we did not look at clinical actionability. We did not do an actionability analysis, but that's actually something that we're doing right now in terms of looking at different genes that are implicated in CP and how does that genetic diagnosis actually change management for the patients and their families. There have been a number of other studies that have looked at the actionability of genetic diagnosis for other related conditions, such as intellectual disability and autism spectrum disorder, and have shown that having a genetic diagnosis can certainly impact management in a number of really important ways. And these ways include things like changing the prognosis from being one of a non-progressive condition to a progressive condition, impacting reproductive counseling, allowing education about availability of certain targeted treatments, and allowing education about awareness of different clinical trials. So certainly I think there's evidence from other disorders, other neurodevelopmental disorders, where a genetic diagnosis absolutely impacts management. And I expect very similar for CP as well.
0: Then the next question that parents will have, which is, does this affect the next pregnancy? In other words, if you find this gene, can I have that tested? For example, if I go through an IVF procedure and you have a genetic diagnosis at the embryo level.
1: Most cases are de novo. What I mean by that is that the misspelling has arisen spontaneously in the child and does not occur in either the mother or the father. The recurrence risk for each pregnancy in that case is about 1%. And the reason why it's not 0% is that there's a theoretical risk for what we call mosaicism in which there's this possibility that the egg cell or the sperm cell may carry the misspelling. Again, that's a low risk, it's not commonplace.
0: Were there any surprises here? In other words, I never knew that gene was involved in cerebral palsy, you know, that changes the game. Absolutely, there were some surprises. The
1: authors of each study sometimes divided the cohort into cryptogenic CP and non-cryptogenic CP. And what I mean by that is, if there are no known risk factors for first CP, we call that cryptogenic CP. And if there are established risk factors for CP present, such as prematurity or hypoxia, we call that non-cryptogenic CP. When we started this analysis, we assumed that the non-cryptogenic CP cases would have a very low diagnostic yield, probably close to zero. What was surprising is that the diagnostic yield among those cases was actually not 0%. There were some genetic disorders that were present in the non-cryptogenic CP category. And that is actually very surprising because the thinking around CP is that, well, if there are known risk factors like prematurity that explain the CP, why would there be a genetic diagnosis? But our data showed, well, actually, in some small percentage of cases in those non-cryptogenic CP cases, there was in fact a genetic diagnosis present which really, I think, is a very interesting finding. And I think it raises a lot of questions about etiology when it comes to CP and really looking truly and deeply in a child or an adult who presents with CP and making sure you as the clinician know and truly understand what is going on and what is the causal factors that are implicated in that presentation of CP.
0: Well, in fact, going on about it, the West Australian data long ago suggested that Babies that had problems during birth may well have had a vulnerability. And it was that vulnerability which increased the risk of problems at birth.
1: You're absolutely right. It continues to be the case in terms of conventional thinking that CPs due to risk due to injury that occurred during delivery, decreased oxygen. Again, that's a small percentage of cases of CP, about 10% of cases of CP or so. But what you're alluding to is the idea, well, there are certainly other antenatal, prenatal risk factors that may have contributed to the development of CP. And though some of those risk factors could be genetic in nature, and and my job and one of my goals really has been to try to unearth those genetic risk factors.
0: Let's say a parent's listening who's got a child with cerebral palsy, should they ask for exome sequencing? Is it at that stage yet where it's a fair question to ask your pediatrician or your obstetrician, can we have it done?
1: When a family of a child with CP comes to see a clinician, I think the clinician's role is to first to see, is the CP completely explained?
0: But you've is just the, said, even if it's completely explained by birth trauma or something like that, there's a percentage where there is a genetic problem.
1: Yeah, I think so. So I think in those cases where the CP is completely explained, what I would say is look for any additional factors that may raise concern for a genetic disorder. What I mean by that is look outside of the nervous system to see, could there be any congenital anomalies? For example, in some of the data, we found that in the cases of non-cryptogenic CP, there were additional findings outside of the brain that could have suggested the possibility of a genetic diagnosis, such as a cleft palate or a genital urinary malformation or something along those lines. So in those cases, I think it's very important for the clinician to not be stuck in the assumption, oh, it's CP, it's not genetic nature. So going back to the families, I think it's fair game for the families to raise the question, could there be an underlying genetic factor going on. I think it's reasonable for the physician, for the clinician to look over the entire history and make sure there isn't any red flag that could suggest the presence of a genetic disorder.
0: Thank you very much for joining us. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Dr. Siddharth Srivastava is a pediatric neurologist and a neurodevelopmental disability specialist at Boston Children's Hospital. Think bigger about the world we live in. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.